Malcolm Holmline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Joins us for the weekly update here on a Friday morning, Erev Shabbos. Mr. Holmline, welcome back to JM in the AM. Thank you. It's always good to be with you. I appreciate that. We note the passing of Rav Belsky, and uh, in addition, of course, to the community uh, suffering the loss and uh, the funeral taking place at Tarvadas in Brooklyn this morning at 10 o'clock. He'll be flown to Israel. Many people, of course, know the details already. Uh, but I think there's something unique to be said about a rabbi, a Torah giant, who really um, had a place in so many parts of the community uh, with such great respect across the board. And I thought that uh, in light of some of the news we've been talking about recently and how we like to emphasize news that is unifying and uh, you know can be looked at in a positive way, you look at his life, he was uh, certainly attractive to so many different areas of Orthodox Jewish life. It is true, and his work with the OU and the Kashrus and uh, the fact that people of all kinds turned to him. Uh, people don't know because I think he was less flamboyant or, or as uh, public in his way, that he was very modest, um, that he was really one of the great minds of our time of um, people who knew him and alert him and who uh, are in a position to judge a thing like that, uh, spoke of his uh, of uh, him being a Taman Chacham of such great stature. So we remember him, and again, the funeral this morning, he'll be flown to Israel, and uh, it seems that, uh, well, not every week, but it seems that we are uh, we're losing some key people in our community. Too often. Too often is right. Last week we spoke about Ronnie Greenwald, and I want to point something else out um, I'm not even sure if you know the news, frankly, because I don't know, you know, if you had been uh, uh, informed. But um, I, I don't know if you know that the Mr. Israel Shia Deer passed away this week. Now, oh no, yes, and you know him, of course. Yes, of course. And I'm and and frankly, I am glad you reacted the way you just did because he was somebody who was was very concerned about the future of Israel and the Jewish people and made it known to you and many others on a regular basis. And just he absolutely f- did, but he he was such a sweet and uh, wonderful man who was always there every year for your marathon. That's right. And they're waiting to take the pictures and <laughs> uh, did it with such enthusiasm and such uh, total commitment. Uh, and, l- and last, I appreciate that, and I'm sure everyone does, it. certainly his family. And last week we got into a conversation for a moment about the difference one person can make. And, you know, some people might think that's only in a high-profile position or in a, uh, you know, somebody who's well-known to the uh, to the vast public. He would stand many days during the week for a long period of time with a sign outside of the Israeli consulate making his opinion known about what was going on in Israel. And that was his... I don't remember exactly how many afternoons. I tend to think it was about four afternoons a week. But that was his activity, to stand there and just, you know, as people would stop and speak to him about the words on the sign and the position that he's taking, that he'd be able to explain it to them. And, you know, silently, in in a way, but in a respectful manner, you know, make the point. And I just think this theme that we started last week about one man, one person making a difference out there, everybody has their role, everybody has their ability to do so. And uh, and like I say, uh, it's not just here at our fundraiser, but in so many other forums, you had the opportunity to meet him and to hear his point of view, always with respect, but always with great conviction. Absolutely.
We remember Mr. Israel Shayadir and our condolences to his family. His family is sitting Shiva down in Philadelphia where one or more of his uh, children live and uh, anybody who needs details can certainly contact us. He will be missed and uh, the Mizrahi, Apollo Mizrahi on the Lower East Side where he would come so often, walk over to Williamsburg Bridge to join us on Shabbos and Yontif. We will certainly uh, miss him as well. Uh, JM and the AM weekly update time. You know, it's... Uh, it's funny that it seems that the, the top story out of Israel this week is that everybody in Israel is angry at LeBron James. Are you following that? <laughs> <laughs> About David Blatt. Yeah. The, the firing of him from the Cavs. <laughs> oh, you I really are. I follow it very closely, but I am aware of it. Yeah, you're really following it, I see. Yeah, that seems to be. I'll, I'll tell you, sometimes it's good that that's the, the, the news of the day, frankly. Um, well, they had a good record, and, and despite that, so see, nobody should believe that they're above being fired. Or, that's right. That's never right. take for granted what you have. That's such a good point. Yeah, I never even thought of it from that way. Just kept thinking about how unfair it was from his angle. So what was it that Ban Ki-moon said this week that got everybody so upset? So Ban Ki-moon gave a speech at the United Nations where they had a day-long uh, attack on the, the Middle East. Uh, and, of course, Syria got you know 30 seconds, Iraq probably 10 seconds. And the bulk of the time was devoted to Palestinian-Israeli conflict, uh, and certainly in his remarks. And what was most troubling uh, and got the reaction was his comments seemingly justifying or seeking to explain the uh, wave of terror, the naifada, the stabbings, etc., that have taken place by saying that it's the occupation and that it's a human reaction to the, to the occupation, and I think the, um, that any effort to try to explain away terrorism or to try to, which gives the appearance, I'm sure it was not the intent to justify terrorism, but not to acknowledge and, and to at least go as far as some of the leadership, the Palestinian leadership themselves and, and Hamas leaders, uh, who, who, one of whom in, in the same time frame said, it's not despair, it's jihad that's behind the violence. And this is a holy war by the Palestinian people against Zionist occupation, and only a holy war will drive them out of it. But he's not talking about uh, you know, a settlement or anything else. He's talking about, uh, about Israel per se. And the prime minister uh, used an interesting phrase. He said that he's giving a tailwind to terrorism uh, by his comments. And the... Um, they did not back off of it, but his uh, comments was that the construction and at the sites, etc., uh, has to be stopped. And I think it's a general recognition right now that hey, this is not the the, the big issue in, in the Middle East or number number two or three. But more importantly, is that that the incitement coming from the Palestinian Authority, which continues unabated, when you have a senior Palestinian Authority official from his own Fatah party from a, the PA uh, president's own Fatah party said that a two-state solution is uh, with uh, Jerusalem as the capital of a state based in the West Bank uh, would be a phase, mm-hmm. ultimately resulting in a single Palestinian state covering, as he said, it stretches from the river to the sea. And that, that was Tawfiq Tarawi, and he's a member of the Central Community Committee. He, he, that receives almost no comment, and he, he, um, he is only one of several who have made these kind of outrageous comments, and therefore the, 
the comment, the, the speech by the Secretary General was all the more disturbing. And this during the week when the United Nations uh, commemorates Holocaust Day, right? Relatively new uh, uh, concept. Well, there was designated a few years ago, and right. every year there is this ceremony, and it's a very moving one. This time it featured the father of the deputy representative of Israel, the permanent representative to the United Nations, David Rhodes' father, who is a survivor. <coughs> and the ceremony itself is, uh, is meaningful. And it's interesting to see around the world how uh, you know, this, this International Holocaust Day, uh, which marks the liberation of Auschwitz, the, the um, commemorations that took place in official venues, you know, in, in uh, legislatures, in, uh, uh, and is the occasion, um, it was also the occasion even for President Obama to visit the Israeli embassy, and for the first time ever, in history, I think, that a sitting president spoke at Israeli embassy. I remember when Clinton went there for to sign the memorial book for Rabin, but I think it's the first time ever that he gave a speech, and it was a, a, a very a moving speech, and he picked up on a line from a Sergeant uh, Edmonds, uh, Raleigh Edmonds, who, uh, when he was asked by a Nazi commandant to... to uh, line everybody up outside their their bunkhouses and to identify who was Jewish. And he stood and he said, we are all Jews here. Hmm. And he was the highest-ranking American non-commissioned officer at the, at this Ziegenhain Stalag. And, and he had more than a 1,000 fellow prisoners who stood together and refused to identify to or to... Uh, um, single out the, the the Jews amongst those who who were there, and the president picked up on that theme and said that we are all Jews, etc. And in Italy, it's interesting to see a poll a study that they just did in in conjunction with this. And while it showed that 91 percent or 81 percent of the people feel they they learned a lot from it, and others uh, cited you know the importance, etc., of doing it. The number of people who said that it's lost its meaning or that it's, uh, it should be just for Jews, about 16%, uh, and around 20% that said you know, that this is no longer meaningful. It's a disturbing statistic, but overwhelmingly the people's response to the other questions was, was very strong. Uh, but it is amazing that now, you know, 70 years later, more than 70 years later, we are still seeing this event commemorated in a way that few historical events are. Yeah, that's true. There was a report out of Israel. The United States uh, State Department has said that products made in uh, Judea and Samaria cannot be labeled made in Israel. Now, this was one report. has not. I haven't seen it anywhere else. Do you have an update in terms of whether the State Department, in fact, has made this policy? This is a policy that was adopted in 1995 and updated in 1997. Uh, there, these are regulations that have been in place for all of this time, and the State Department did issue an advisory or a notice, um, a reminder, to, to right to remind people about the restriction because of those that are being imposed in Europe. Uh, and it essentially says that the, the customs officials are not to admit stuff that produced in the West Bank if it does not say so, and it cannot say made in the West Bank of Israel or Israel and the West Bank. It has to specifically say made in the West Bank and could be barred. Now, I don't know that, I think it, it was not 
applied, and this may indicate that there will be stricter application of it. It is not a new law. It is not uh, in any way changed from what has been on the books for a long time. Um, Mort Zuckerman has designated $100 million to fight the quote-unquote academic brain drain and increase cooperation between the U.S. and Israeli scientific collaboration. He's committed that money to attract postdoctoral researchers in science, math, and related fields from Western countries to Israeli universities and lure Israeli academics back. I, I was not aware that there that there is a brain drain problem in Israel. Is this as severe as he's painting a picture? Well, it doesn't apply to you and I. I get so. <laughs> Not, uh, but I never. Nobody, I, I, nobody I, threatening us of being responsible. For but I never heard of people on that academic level who are leaving Israel in droves, or, or you people, know, or, or, people forget that Israel is still a relatively small country, and the opportunities for academics. That you know, they used to say when Russian Jews came, you could tell which one um, uh, was a pianist because he was the only one not carrying an instrument. Because three million Jews, they said, entertained you know two hundred million Russians. And there are a limited number of orchestras, so people travel abroad or went abroad to, to join other orchestras, even while retaining their Israeli citizenship. And you have many, many Israeli scientists who have gone abroad and to, to great acclaim in many cases. Um, and it's really to foster greater exchanges, this program, uh, between American institutions and uh, of higher learning and Israeli institutions of higher learning. I was there at the ceremony, and... You know, I, I consider him a very close and great friend, and his gesture is very important. Hopefully others will emulate it, because what he's essentially doing is providing the opportunity for them to come back and to build, uh, um, to build laboratories or whatever other infrastructure they need in order to continue that work. Uh, Israel, obviously, is on the cutting edge of, of um, many areas in science and technology, and this will serve as an enhancement and uh, each year there will be another one started, and so over time it will create a whole cadre of people who uh, who will be able to facilitate their coming in, you know, for uh, very talented students, and, and hopefully that students from in Israel who will be um, uh, given an opportunity to stay and still grow in their chosen field. Yeah, never enough, ac- I mean, I'm, I'm not even saying this tongue-in-cheek, I'm being serious, never enough academics as you try to grow your country. <laughs> right. Um, it's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program heard on listeners sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, Rockland County at 91.9 in the FM dial broadcasting live from the Sony and Robert Gold Studios in Jersey City, New Jersey, around the world on the web, jmnam.org. Uh, by the way, one other note on the, uh, on the uh, international Holocaust day, you saw the report that Eichmann had begged for clemency from Israeli officials. Yes, that they released, uh... The letter, um, and uh, here's a guy who who denied millions clemency, children, women, people guilty of nothing, and this mass murderer then thinks he's entitled to clemency is quite ironic. Yeah, it was somewhat bizarre, that's for sure. Uh, Human Rights Report has accused Israel of violence against the uh, Palestinians. Um, anything of note aside from Israel in that report? Well, I didn't read the uh, the rest of the report. When you get to that, it just uh, makes you sick and you, you shut it off. But but it, it's nothing new. They they consistently put out these reports every year that are biased and one sided uh, um, in appearance. 
about Israel and uh, singling out Israel for double, triple, quadruple uh, standards. Uh, it is uh, it's just such a consistent pattern with them uh, over over a long period of time. You know, you don't see them talking about how uh, how Israel Israel's contributions and and all that Israel does of positive nature, including. In Gaza, including the medical treatment, including the, what they're doing on the Syrian border, uh, so many amazing things that that are being done. You, you saw the study that ranked Israel as the eighth most powerful country in the world. In the, this was a U.S. News and World study, but but it was done by uh, other um, uh, institutions to, that did this study itself and ranked them on on a number of criteria. But at the same time, the same day, they, it came out that Israel's um, high-tech sec- sector raised, I think, almost $4.5 billion in 2015, which was up 30% in a year when people said it would, be, uh, it would decrease greatly. And uh, there were, I think, a, over 700 deals involving Israeli you know, startups and companies. So the negative stories get still so much disproportionate coverage in the New York Times this week had oh, yeah. to issue a correction right. regarding its coverage of, of construction uh, and um, but but so few of the distorted stories there when they r- ran that story about the murder and says 13 year old girl um, uh, Palestinian girl 13 shot dead by Israeli guard without saying anything that she had a knife in her hand was stabbing that guard but that was the headline. Unbelievable. And nobody, very few people will read beyond that right. to get the real story. I wonder how many <laughs> how many people are even aware of the correction. Um, and frankly, it, it was a shock that they went ahead and corrected it. Uh, last night in the Trumpless uh, debate, Marco Rubio resolved that he will uh, uh, revoke the Iran deal uh, if, in fact, he becomes president of the United States. What, what is the, and we may end up asking this question every week for the next year, who knows, but... What is the likelihood of any of this happening? If there is a different president, does this current Iran deal literally revert back if that president wishes to where it was before it was a deal? This deal was never passed. You remember that the vote in the Senate was 58-42 against it in the House, against it, and they pulled a maneuver, a parliamentary maneuver, with the threat of the of the filibuster, et cetera, and got this... Uh, and then the president signed it, but it was never really passed. It's not a treaty. It's not. It doesn't have the standing of it. And the next president, according to legal interpretations that I've seen, is not bound by it. It will be very difficult to undo as the as the Europeans and others are rushing into deals. You saw this week the visit of President Rouhani of Iran to France and to Italy and meeting with the Pope. And you know they took him to a museum. They covered up the things that they thought would be offensive. I've never seen them do it for another leader, um, and uh, you know they, they they took off the wine, but the French wouldn't because they wouldn't do a meal without French wine, so yeah. they skipped the meal. Um, but we saw this week what's really happening in Iran, and the so-called quote moderate, represented by uh, Rouhani, who under whom there are more executions executions of innocents than ever before, but the the um, the, the vetting panel knocked out 7,000 candidates out of 12,000, but of the candidates for the Council of Experts, which is the body that will pick the next Ayatollah, the next Supreme Leader, 
uh, of Iran, they took out, uh, they left 166 of 801 candidates. And so anybody who was a moderate, anybody who wasn't seen as, as completely uh, compliant with the view of the hardliners, uh, was was eliminated. So those who think that we're going to see a liberal trend and we're going to see the government change and it's going to be all all of these good things uh, uh, happening. In fact, during the Yom Hashoah, they had again the Holocaust cartoon contest so abhorrent that even UNESCO complained and issued a statement uh, uh, condemning it. And Khamenei himself on that day issued a a video where they questioned whether the Shoah happened, whether the Holocaust happened, right. certainly questioning the uh, magnitude, uh, and, and, and it featured a lot of the leading Holocaust deniers uh, from Europe. So we don't see any change. We see companies indeed running to, to make deals. We'll see how many of them are actually uh, 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 combat, uh, consummated. But what we're seeing in terms of this election with the elimination of so-called moderates from uh, uh, from even running uh, sort of uh, presages what we can expect the outcome to be. So the hope of of bringing change to the people and that the people's needs would be somehow met, I think, is is illusionary. And and we have again seen that that is true. And we see Iran now more active in Iraqi Kurdistan. The reports that finally came out about. Iran and Hezbollah's activities in South America, Canadian and Mexican intelligence uh, did joint uh, work on it, and they talk about the extensive network about the um, that they found on the Mexican border with the U.S., where they make fake passports and fake papers, where they're involved in all sorts of drugs and other uh, activities. Uh, so I don't think that there can be any question. And they talked about the activities in, in not only in Mexico but Nicaragua and Chile and Colombia and. Uh, Bolivia and Ecuador, if you know, is subject that I have been talking about for years on this show, and it is one of my uh, pet issues because no one will pay attention. Our own government won't pay attention. Nobody was really paying attention for this, which has been going on for so many years, and they built a huge infrastructure with tens of thousands of agents in South America and involved in all sorts of illicit activities and terrible activities. Um, and they said, one of them that was captured admitted, a guy, that he was part of the Iran Revolutionary Guard and that he was there to collect data on anti-Iranian um, activities and individuals um, and, and to determine any, th- any threats um, and, pre- and to prepare strikes against those who were seen as uh, anti-Iran. So this tells the real story. And uh, just back to the beginning of this for a second, you mentioned the president of Iran going to Paris. At this point, is there, I don't know, any country that wouldn't welcome him? Not that there's a deal, not that there's all this business going on between countries, you know, many of them and Iran. Is there, I don't know, basically no restriction. I mean, I don't even know if there was a restriction beforehand on him making a state visit like that. Uh, but at this point, is there, is there, you know, is he welcome everywhere? Essentially, and uh, I don't think in Egypt or Saudi Arabia would welcome him right now. Right, understood. Uh, Any of the European countries? In in Europe today, they roll out the red carpet. They're all gearing up to make deals and to to um, treat him as uh, the enlightened leader and 
when you see who really pulls the strings by what I just told you about the election preparation, right. about the fact that they're continuing to provide support or increasing it to, to terrorist organizations that they cut back a little bit on Hezbollah uh, because they didn't, don't have the cash right now or, or Hamas. But, but it doesn't stop Hamas from going ahead and uh, expanding all the underground tunnels. And the, there was one this week that collapsed because of the heavy rains, and seven or eight of the uh, terrorists were, were killed. Uh, that was in Khan Yunus. Um, but the, they're seeing that the, um, the people along near the border are again complaining about the underground digging and the noises that they had heard you know, several years ago, two years ago. Uh, as well as the upgraded in, 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 of the missile capacity, the sea uh, capacity attack by sea, and that is uh, anticipated that it would be a multi-pronged uh, attack the next time. Uh, yeah, but you, you see, I get frustrated week after week at, at, at you because you're our connection to the Israeli government in many cases, you know, in terms of the stabbings and the inability, it seems, to take control of that situation, which I understand we discussed it at length last week. But here, I don't know, I mean... If average citizens have their eyes and ears on the situation and understand that what's happening below them is the digging of tunnels, and now all this evidence comes out because of this, uh, you know, accident where where these people are killed. I mean, it, it, we know we know that there's no choice but to protect the citizens of Israel. They've got to eliminate these tunnels. The Israeli army so, has. So I'm glad you you raised that because I should have said it uh, when I when I spoke about it. The answer is that Israel is developing technology, applying that technology to try and find um, these uh, tunnels as they are being built. They have closed them. They blow them up. They learned the lessons from the past that you have to go in and destroy them completely. These, and that is how they know that they have multiple exits. You know, it's not just a, a linear tunnel where you have the one end in, uh, opening and as you know, that many of these openings could be underneath a sink. It could be in somebody's kitchen and bathroom. Um, you don't see the construction uh, because it's set back in Gaza, but they monitor it all the time. They do look for it. It's not as if they're ignoring it. And the sound that people hear could is not necessarily in the immediate vicinity of, of the house. It may sound it, but um, and they dig deeper. And uh, as you, in one recent case, they found that they had. Uh, imported metal plates and lined the, um, which they said was for housing construction, but really they used it to line the uh, the tunnels that they built, and they want to use it again to kidnap soldiers and to be able to carry out attacks as part of a coordinated effort that would involve uh, drones and involve um, launching rockets and uh, sea attacks. So uh, Israel is definitely doing a lot. You don't talk about it. They don't talk about it because it's not something you want to expose how you do it and what you do. Uh, it's more important that you do it. Yeah, no, I understand that. It just... It's frustrating, believe me, uh, the stabbings and things are much more frustrating for every member of the military, the police, and, and I speak to them about it, and they, you know, the, it's, it's not an organized effort that you can crush a headquarters. They're do, taking actions every day. They're arresting uh, Hamas cells. They... We know that the the um, son of Nasrallah was involved in trying to establish a cell and brought five thousand dollars in to pay people f to be involved. And how many? Uh, almost every day that there are arrests and and the the intelligence uh, network is is so important to Israel security. And when people complain or you know the media and others and talk about 
Israel going across and going in at night to the, to some of the camps and other places, cities, to uh, arrest people because the PA doesn't do it, or the PA would prefer that Israel do it, and they're essential. But each of these things saves God knows how many lives, and the key again is ending the incitement, stopping the PA from, you know, shirking its responsibility. They are directly responsible for a lot of the incitement coming from their own media and their statements and their honoring of terrorists and declaring them martyrs and all of the other activities that uh, we saw so evidence in the 15-year-old who, who, who killed Daphne uh, Mayer when, who, who said that he had just finished watching PATV, yeah. uh, which runs these things day and night, and um, you know the insightful uh, programs. So um, this is... Uh, the government of Israel faces incredible challenges and I think does overall a remarkable job. But you don't read about the successes. You don't hear about the successes. You hear of Chas Shalom, something that takes place. Yeah, well, in this case, you just wonder how, if there's so much evidence that these tunnels <laughs> exist, <laughs> and how much more evidence you need than what happened this week, you, you just wonder how they can, can how, they, how it can continue like that. How it's well, Israeli, it's the Israeli officials and military who are telling us that they exist in acknowledging uh, uh, what is going on in Gaza and and monitoring it, and short of reoccupying Gaza, they have to operate with uh, with a lot of limitations on them and their ability to uh, uh, you know root out the whole infrastructure uh, again. So they try to limit what is sent in, and then the world condemns them for. You know, having uh, limitations on on Gaza, having uh, you know restrictions and uh, all sorts of exaggerated uh, accounts. When in fact, a thousand trucks a day go in, and, and Israel uh, allows them a lot more leeway, despite the fact that they take advantage of it. To and and by the way, the Egyptians are far more tough on, on this, and they've flooded and and closed the. Um, perhaps 1,500 uh, tunnels on their side. Right. Um, and God willing, we'll go and see it and be able to report on it more directly. But th- they've taken really tough steps in the world. gives them a lot more leeway. When they cleared that the houses and everything that were obstructing or, or being used as cover along the border, they went in and the world can, said, this is uh, unacceptable. And they said, good, and you let your citizens be killed. And they went ahead and did what they had to do. And uh, and I think Israel is doing what it has to do. Yeah, uh, you know. Again, I know, <laughs> I know. I bring this up every once in a while, but you watch the debates, and you know, you get these thirty second snippets of how everybody's going to de- is going to destroy ISIS, as if they're going to pick up a gun themselves and go and you know and and eradicate every single member of uh, of IS wherever they may be in this world, and. I don't know. Is it comical to you to to hear these military assessments in these thirty second sound bites? Simplifying and or making the threat of ISIS and the global terrorist network and the dangers that we face simplistic is is counterproductive. And people think then you can just you know if if we only committed a few more troops if we did something. What we need is an all out war against them. We know, for instance, and I reported on the show a couple weeks ago about. ISIS relocating to Libya, if you remember, and and that there were 5,000 of them in Sirte. Now, if, if on JM and AM on a Friday morning that information is heard, 
they must have known it other places. And it shouldn't <laughs> have been such a great revelation that two days ago, all of a sudden, they're talking about IS, uh, Islamic State, and Al-Qaeda right. seizing territory and establishing themselves in Sirte, right. which is 300 miles across from Crete and from Europe, which has become a base of, of uh, operation that they're both uh, seeking to establish a territorial control to, to uh, as a training ground and, and to... Um, um, and they take advantage of the chaos in, in Libya and have, in fact, carried out some attacks on the oil installations in that country. So ISIS, IS, may have had some setbacks in Syria, may have had some, you know, here or there, but it doesn't matter because they continue to grow and they're not, it's not one central operation. Hezbollah is more affected by its losses in uh, Syria, I would say, where it has a ramification at home where people, uh, want them to say we didn't send our boys to die fighting in Syria. It's supposed to fight against Israel. And he and Nasrallah then gives a speech refocusing the attention and his, his uh, pledges to destroy Israel because he knows how much uh, dissent there is. And they've also had financial problems. They cut the salaries in half. Uh, they uh, at the same time, though, we see uh, groups moving into cities like Dara, where despite the pledges by Putin and others that they would not allow allow the IRGC or Hamas or I mean Hezbollah or any of these groups in in fact they are there and that gets very close to Jordan and Israel's borders yeah year from today we'll have a new president in this country wonder if much is going to be different I don't know well, a year in politics is a very very long time people uh, should realize that we you know you have to deal with today and tomorrow and while the election is important and everybody should be involved uh we have a year yet of this administration. We have a year of challenges in the Middle East, which are, are very great. And um, as we cite only a few each week, these are, are all going to be very critical. Uh, and what is done today and tomorrow about them is important. You saw the Greek-Israeli-Cyprus um, joint meeting and, and summit, and uh, both of them saying that this is not anti-Turkey. Uh, but the fact is, that countries are increasingly recognizing the dangers that they face and the need for them to come together, and that Israel's an integral part of the solution, not of the problem. If I don't ask you about this uh, secret meeting with Jonathan Pollard, I can't walk into shul tonight. So what could you tell us about uh, your and other Jewish leaders' encounters with Jonathan Pollard this week? So you're dominating at home tonight? <laughs> I, may, I may have to. <laughs> so... It wasn't secret at our request. It, Jonathan Pollard approached me, and uh, we had a, a meeting, and, and he said that his one request was, uh, one meeting he wanted to make was with the President's Conference, that he looked forward for many years. They wanted to come and thank us for what we did, and thank the members and others who, who helped. And uh, I felt that it was important to, to grant the correct request, because he said he's not doing any media, he's not doing any other meetings, he's trying to honor all the pledges that he made. Uh, and our executive committee certainly approved it, and we had a meeting. We didn't announce it to the press because we didn't want it to become a circus and because we wanted him to be able to speak confidentially. And unfortunately, somebody leaked the fact that the meeting was taking place, and his lawyers were somewhat apprehensive. So he was allowed to make an opening statement, and his wife then gave the detailed uh, presentation that he would have given 
and mostly about the conditions of his parole and the restrictions that are uh, very onus restrictions that are placed upon him. Uh, he, I have to say he's very articulate. He has a great sense of humor. He's uh, it's remarkable that he's not bitter and he's not uh, angry. Um, he, he acquitted himself, uh, both of them, very well, and um, you know then everybody had to go and leak it. And in fact, it was he, the Pollard he, people themselves who, who leaked the details of the stories, not the members of the president. He, he, and that he, was to preempt. He said he looks better than I would have expected. Yes, he's gained a considerable amount of weight, and he's uh, looks more robust. But he also has still a lot of medical uh, issues. He looks—he looked pretty good, though. I must say, Baruch Hashem. <laughs> uh, all right, I asked the question, I got the answer, and I appreciate that. Uh, so, when is, you're heading to Israel next week? When does this happen? The big uh, mission to uh, the February mission with the president's conference. Well, I I head to Israel next week, and then we are going to visit uh, two region, two countries in the Middle East. And then we start the week after the full uh, week of the conference's annual leadership mission in Israel. And we have some conferences, and then I'll be going to Europe back again. All right, so we've we got to figure out the schedule because uh, we've got a whole bunch of stuff juggling over the next couple of weeks. We'll let the audience know, of course, way in advance. I thank you. Have a wonderful Shabbos, and thanks for joining us. Have a good Shabbos. Malcolm Holmline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Joins us for the weekly update Friday mornings here at JMN.